Wednesday, February 1st, 2023, from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. There's a lot of trouble in the world. It's a whole wide world. There are massive epidemics, a massive liar in the U.S. Congress, a massive war in Europe, and a little, little, teeny, weeny capsule in Australia. I've been hearing about this capsule for days now. Here's the BBC. In Australia, its nuclear safety agencies confirmed it's joined the search for a missing radioactive capsule, which is just six millimeters in diameter. It fell from a truck somewhere along a vast stretch of highway in Western Australia. The capsule emitted both beta rays and gamma rays, which prompted Australian authorities to warn the public to stay away You will not turn into the Hulk. Repeat, non-Hulk-like qualities will be transferred despite the gamma rays. ABC Australia has more. It sparked a frantic search along a 1,400-kilometre stretch of highway between a Rio Tinto mine site and a Perth storage depot. The hubbub over the itty-bitty outback tic-tac, or as they say in Australia? Tic-tac in the outback. Or maybe they say it. There was a bloody tic-tac. In the bloody airbag. But while the capsule was wee, the stakes could not be higher because according to authorities, this capsule, which was only known to have gone missing on a stretch of land 1,400 kilometers long from the outback to Perth, carried with it danger. The radiation, oh, the radiation. But how much radiation? Well, if you think phrases like eight millimeters, which is a third of an inch, and 1,400 kilometers, which is 870 miles, if you think those are hard to get your head around, I will not express the amount of radiation in rads. I shan't. I will, however, quote all the articles which said, well, here's the BBC. It will expose you to the equivalent of 10 x-rays per hour. Which is, wait, it's really not that bad, is it? Aren't there dentist offices in Burbank doing 10 x-rays an hour? All right, the patients wear lead aprons, but this was a whole country that happens to be a whole continent, so let me say it that way. This was a whole continent riveted. A few continents. It was a worldwide story. I saw it everywhere. But the actual capsule, the Outback Tic Tac, seems to have possessed maybe the danger of one ill-tempered dingo. So I guess in a country or world with mm, fewer threats than I'd assumed, a continent held its breath waiting for this grave potential inconvenience to be captured, and the capsule was. The capsule was located just south of Newman on the Great Northern Highway. It was two metres from the side of the road. So Newman is a town with nary a human, and that is the demarcation point on a highway so untraveled they didn't really give it a name. Great, but also, meh, Northern Highway. This is the most dangerous third of an inch entity since Donald Trump's mushroom penis. All right, I will, I will admit that was beneath me. I am just glad that it has been placed in a lead container and has been contained this really non life-threatening potential dose of radiation that never actually dosed anyone 10,000 miles away. So let's get any of those terrible images I helped put in your head out of there and remember the important lesson of this story of Australian grit and perseverance. A dingo ate your radioactive capsule. On the show today, it is the day objectivity died. But first... Michael Imperioli is back, the star of The Sopranos and White Lotus this last season, which we will discuss, as well as the author of The Perfume Burned His Eyes. More 
of this very fascinating conversation with Michael Imperioli up next. This is Jess Betancourt, the host of DNA ID, the only true crime podcast that exclusively covers cases solved using forensic genealogy. DNA ID goes behind the headlines to answer your questions about this remarkable new crime-solving tool, how it works, how cases are selected, why the cases were unsolved for so long, and how the justice system is addressing it. I include input from law enforcement to give you the inside scoop that we all crave with a straightforward, no-nonsense delivery. You can find DNA ID on any podcast platform. Episodes come out weekly on Mondays. Michael Imperioli, actor, founder of a theater company, lead singer of a band, author of The Perfume Burned His Eyes, is back. And in this part of the interview, I noticed as I looked through his IMDb that he is often not cast as a father, but he is a father. I listened to the Talking Sopranos podcast. He's always talking about his kids. Being a father is a very important part of his life. And so I asked him, do you think that maybe it's typecasting, maybe it's a vibe he gave off. Is it true that you weren't cast as a father? And if so, did you want to write about fatherhood in fiction because you were not being asked to play fathers on the screen? Yeah, that was a, that, that is true. And it's probably some exactly what, how you put it. Some of it typecasting, some of it from the vibe maybe that I was giving off or the vibe that people perceived in me. Um, but now that seems to be little bit different and you know it's uh i like the the roles that i've played over over my career um i've tended to play a lot of addicts um which i'm not really sure why i mean i I, i've done a lot of research and i understand addiction i've had issues with it myself and i've had a lot of friends that have had issues i've had friends that have died from it um um so and i i like i i like playing that because it's a really when you are an actor and you're playing someone who's battling with himself or herself it's really juicy but um playing a like white lotus i played a father and a son but um who was also an addict and battling with himself battling with his father and battling with his son and trying to be a good father, trying to be a good son. Trying to, and uh, that also was quite satisfying because there was a lot of complexity to that part, to all those parts. The addict of the White Lotus character was sex, sex addiction, right? Yeah. Yeah. Was there other addiction, substance addiction that maybe we didn't see, but you gave yourself as a backstory? No, not necessarily. That wasn't, didn't seem like it was an issue with him. It wasn't something we really addressed. I mean, often those things go hand in hand. Drinking maybe, you know, kind of lowers your inhibitions and kind of, you know, puts you in a place where you're going to behave more with more risk, you know, riskier. Uh, but we didn't really address that so much. So as a viewer, the depth of White Lotus is fantastic. And I'm wondering as an actor, was it a unique challenge opportunity to play someone in between the generations where we saw the interactions up and down that's pretty rare actually to to for you as an adult uh to play someone interacting with your father who's a fully cognizant adult and your son who's not a little kid in the in white lotus albie was you know just graduated college i haven't seen that too much before no i, I mean it was really cool um i mean both 
just playing family dynamics. And then on top of it, like you said, playing this generational thing that's in, in today's world is very, very specific and very delineated. Albie, this, the grandson, my son, uh, Murray, Abraham's grandson, really represents the post Me Too generation and um, which is a very different, has very different um, expectations than my generation. At the same time, my generation has very different mentality than my father's, you know, that's who probably came of age pre-women's lib. So they're three very different. My character, for me, it was very interesting because he's, he sees both sides a little bit. I mean, he sees his, you know, he's, he says that he's always been a feminist and, you know, appreciates Right. I'm a feminist. I married your mother. Who's this powerful who's woman. A strong and, woman and not just yes, some subservient yes. housewife, which is true to some degree, yet he hasn't kind of reconciled or reckoned with the fact that he's, you know, probably exploiting women at the same time in some situations. Um, but he does definitely see his father's generation's injustice and limitations and all that. Do you think you and or Mike White were portraying those generations as an evolution, that it gets better uh, as we move along generationally at male, the definition of masculinity and men's attitudes towards women? That's a really good question. That's really a, a brilliant question. Are people happier today? Right. But is happiness the- No, I don't know. Right means yes or no. No, I don't know. But also, you could also ask, is happiness the ultimate expression of progress, right? Uh, maybe, yeah. <laughs> maybe, I mean, the, if... maybe the grandfather was happy because he was subjugating half the population. But he wasn't happy. Day. He was miserable. You know, when he really confronted himself with the truth and, you know, realized that his wife hated him and died bitter, you know. Um, I mean, it's progress in terms of, you know, you're, you're in a society where the laws of society protect you like they protect everyone else which we haven't <laughs> we haven't really gotten to yet in this society because there's large portions of of uh you know talking about the book the trans community who don't have the same are not afforded the same rights as um everyone else um so in some ways i think it is progress on a societal level but yet at the same time at the same time, a lot of our technological process, uh, progress and evolution, I think, has done a lot of damage. Um, I think the speed at which information moves and, at, and the speed and volume at which we absorb information has led to um, a certain mental problem, mental problems with people who, who um, are overwhelmed with what to do with their lives, where to put importance, what's important, where to put their attention, what to strive for, what to, what expectations to have, where to find meaning. You know, uh, this year, last year, they said the, the life expectancy in the U.S. went down uh, for the first time in a very, very long time. And they attributed it to a lot of people dying of overdose, suicide, accidents because of drug and alcohol abuse and things like that. And they attributed that stuff to a lack of meaning. Deaths of despair is the general. Yeah. Well, and a lack of meaning in things that 
people traditionally were able to find meaning in, like family, like their work, like their community, like their spiritual life and religion. And that's really, that's not evolution. I think that's scary. Right. And many of those themes, there is a speech that the Portia character gives where she talks about this with uh, her boss. So it brings me to the question, when you're in a work like that and you're trying to discern the intention of the writer, how how much do you look beyond the stuff that's going on with your character? Like your character wouldn't have known that Portia had those thoughts or feelings, but you could tell that this is something that the creator is trying to express. So how much do you let that into your consciousness? Um, Very much so. You know, uh, one of the things that really drew me to the project, because I had not seen the show season one when I heard they were interested in me. Uh, So when I went and watched it all, I was very impressed with Mike's. He didn't just go, you know, he didn't go for the low hanging fruit and just kind of make this cynical statement about rich people suck and the world sucks and, you know, people are gross and whatever. He really was able to uh, explore people's humanity and take them as individuals who are struggling as human beings to exist, you know? Um, You know, reading, because I read the whole seven episodes before we started, getting a sense of what these themes were, you know, season two was much more about sexual politics, you know, male and female relationships, traditional, as against bumping up against modern. Um, So yeah, you have to be aware of that because a lot of your choices as an actor, how do you find what interesting personal choices to make? Well, you don't just take them out of thin air. You really want them to be consistent and parallel and supporting the themes of the script. So yeah, definitely be aware. I'm definitely very much aware of what he was trying to say, I guess, or what I interpreted it as such. White Lotus coming back for season three. There definitely is a chance that some characters recur. Don't tell me if you are or if you know anything about I it. I wish but I just knew. tell me. I wish I was. That's the question. Do you even know? Do you know if Mike White knows? I don't think he's, you know, as of the last time I saw him, he had not started writing it. He may have started writing and he may start getting ideas. I mean, I would love nothing more than to go back and do another season of the white lotus uh i'm not getting my expectations up nor would i hold it against mike if he didn't bring me back because he's he's got to come up with stories that are going to work for what for this season and you know he brought jennifer back and john grease her you know who played her husband boyfriend uh but you know i'm sure he loved and respected all those other actors he didn't bring them back because he couldn't he wanted a new cast you know so i i wouldn't if I most likely I probably won't go back, but I wouldn't take that as like some kind of slight against me or anything. Um, but would I love to? I would love to. I know he teased maybe next year will be about Eastern religions, and I know you're Buddhist, so maybe he could use your expertise on that. Maybe. Uh my character's certainly not Buddhist. It's actually, you know, it's interesting what he said was so well, the first season was really about money, the second season was about sex, and the third season he said might be about death from an Eastern kind of point of view perspective, because so, he wants to set it in Asia, most likely. That's what he said in, a, in an interview, not, not what he said to me. Did you, as a character who prominently died on a TV show, put your arm around Jennifer Coolidge and t- told her what it's like to have died? 
You know, I died on a TV show, but it was like the end of the... There was only like two episodes left, so I, I didn't feel... I mean, if I would have got killed in like Vinnie Pastor died at the end of season two, and then we went on for another five seasons after that, you know, that would have been really hard. Um, And, you know, he's spoken about that and said it was hard. It was hard to see everyone go on. People made a lot more money than he did because, you know, you renegotiate as the, as the seasons go on. Um people got to keep working on something that he loved. That's something that a uh, very high quality. Uh, but I stayed pretty much to the end. So it wasn't, I wasn't heartbroken. Like, Oh, I'm dying. And you know, uh, next to last episode or something like that. Um, but I think Jen had a good run with that character for a show that really has brand new casts every year. I mean, she certainly, uh, well, and really deserved all the attention, all the acclaim she's getting. Cause she's brilliant in that. Since you've been on two of the, I'm going to say it, two of the great shows in TV history and worked with geniuses like uh, Mike White and David Chase, what commonalities do you see between them? And maybe you could bring in, you've worked with other brilliant people, Spike Lee, for instance. What are the commonalities of these people who can put a finger on our humanity as they can? A, it's really knowing themselves really well. People who have really tried to examine and try to understand who they were as individuals and what made them tick and why they behaved in the way that they behaved. Because then you can apply that to other people, other characters, and, and um, find, I think, a certain universality in the world of individuals that you're putting together. Um, they both are really... Uh, detail-oriented. Nothing's really left to chance, you know. Nothing's left general. Things, choices are made very, very specifically. And they they also are very willing to take risks. Taking risks and presenting characters that, like for instance, with David Chase, once we got greenlit, the pilot, we did the pilot, we got greenlit to do season one. One of the first few episodes, maybe the third or fourth, Tony Soprano is on a college trip, looking at colleges in New England with his daughter. He sees a rat who was, uh, you know, put a lot of people in the family away, who's been hiding out in witness protection, and kills him. So when HBO read that script, they said, no, 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 you can't do that. You can't have the star, the leading man of a show who people now, after watching a few episodes, have fallen in love with, kill a man in cold blood. You're going to lose the audience. You can't do that in TV. And he said, no, it's the opposite. If we don't do that, they're going to lose. They're going to lose their affection for him because living under the code that he lives in and his and this other guy, this former mobster live in, this is what has to be done and what's honorable in his world. And HBO stood by him and let him do what he wanted to do. And that episode won best script of the year, Emmy. And it was a defining episode. And I'll take it further as a viewer. I think later on in the series, he was running into the opposite problem of likability that he perceived. And I think this was right, that the fans were liking some of these horrible characters and valorizing them and not realizing just how bad they were. So, I mean, this is how I perceived it. He he made the uh, Ralphie character played by Joe Pantaleone kill that poor stripper in a really brutal way as if to underline you know, these are not people who are doing, who are engaged in some romantic action to confront the audience a little. Um, yeah, I think part of that, 
maybe, you know, was to like keep reminding people that this is really a, a very big aspect of who these guys are, you know. And you continually needed foils for Tony Soprano. So, and Tony <laughs> obviously was killing and robbing and stuff like that. So you needed to have somebody who was doing it in a much more immoral, worse fashion, more amoral, immoral or amoral fashion. Um, you know, it's like Goodfellas. The first scene in Goodfellas is a flash forward to the, you know, when they're a little bit older. Because when, and it's a scene when they they kill Frank Vincent's character and he's in the trunk of the car. It's a very, very vicious, brutal, dark scene. And then it goes back in time to like the 50s or 60s when they're at their youngest. And people, they're younger, they're playing like Tony Bennett. It's very, you know, upbeat, kind of innocent in a way, kind of fun. But I think Scorsese put that scene first to say, before you get seduced by the romance and the fun of all this, remember, this is what we're also dealing with. And I think that speaks to what you were talking about, um, you know, with Joe Pantoliano's character and eventually with Tony Soprano himself. So as I think about the fact that you had these interactions with these famous people who are icons like Jim Gandolfini, like Lou Reed, put Leota, there are probably others um, thinking about, and we've lost them all. When you process that, does there, how much does the personal, for you to process it, do you think about them personally and your personal interactions? Do you think about their who they played and their public personas and does it help you understand the loss to think more of who they were um, as icons than who they were personally? You know, Lou was an icon to me before I met him. You know, he was a hero. He was someone I really looked up to and someone whose work really inspired me. Um, when I met Jim Gandolfini, I didn't really know his work. He wasn't really that famous. Uh, we were kind of in very similar places career-wise. Um, it wasn't, and he wasn't that much older. He was much old, The characters we played were much older, what much different, different in age than we were. Right, you were playing a guy younger than you were, and he was playing yeah, yeah. A guy older. Yeah, because a lot of people always ask me, did Jim give you advice? Or did he? You know, was he? And he was not a mentor by any means. We were friends. We were kind of in the same boat. Um, actually I had kids and was married already. And that happened to him a little bit later. Um, so, uh, you know, we were much more just peers and colleagues than anything else. So, and we were very good friends. So, um, I think about him more as a friend, you know, with Lou, it's a little bit of both because I, you know, as a young man, I didn't know him, but he was such a hero to me. And some, someone I was really drawn to and someone who inspired me a lot. But I do take it that Jim's death or Jim as a person was extremely important to you, not just what we as the public know that you played these two important iconic characters. A am I right about that? That you were really close to him and losing him was one of the more impactful yeah. things in your life. I acted with him more than I've acted with any other actor, probably more than I will act with any other actor. and. We did a lot of work that was very, you know, um, close to the bone, you know, and very intense and very, 
uh, personal and intimate and revealing. And we did it together and we trusted each other and supported each other through that. So, and then we had a lot of fun together. We hung out a lot um, and we're good friends. Uh, so that loss was huge, you know? Michael Imperioli's novel, The Perfume Burned His Eyes, has been reissued. And of course, you know, you can watch The White Lotus and much of his work on HBO Max. Michael, thank you so much. This was great. Thank you very much. I enjoyed it a lot. And now the spiel. We, as journalists, are guided by a series of loose rules, less rules than norms often, passed down, sometimes dictated, about the right way to do things. Two-source confirmation, give the accused a chance to respond, don't name the victims of certain crimes. A big notion, at least to outsiders, was the embrace of the idea of objectivity. It answers the obvious question, well, why should I believe you? The answer becomes, well, don't think of me as me. Think of me as a deliverer or a vessel for something like the objective truth. Your concerns about my tastes and beliefs, they're warranted. So we'll remove them from the equation by embracing an idea called objectivity. The thing is, the practitioners of this profession, for at least my tenure doing it, have always regarded objectivity as less of a North Star and more of a shorthand for a constellation of ideas. Beliefs like, generally speaking, we should be open-minded enough to go where the story leads us. We shouldn't report if we're doing hard news with a preordained outcome. Objectivity meant agnosticism and a check on biases that we all have, but that we should try to control. And that might reassure the audience that we can be trusted. No more. Now the new argument is, that doesn't assure the audience at all. In fact, What it does is just revalidates that the audience is one kind of person, one who looks like you and thinks like you. And in fact, that idea is the enemy of credibility. There's no such thing as objectivity. It is not an ideal. It is a false god. Somewhat interesting, somewhat up its own ass journalism debate, which is to say what we're doing here is deciding on what inexact word to apply to the general direction of a widely varied field with no credentialing process. But there is a new chapter in that debate because yesterday was the day objectivity died. Former Washington Post editor Len Downey Jr., whose very name is close to an old English kenning for legendary journalist, wrote an op-ed in his old newspaper, the headline, Newsrooms That Move Beyond Objectivity can build trust. It was an echo of the paper he had just produced for Arizona State University's Walter Cronkite School of Journalism and Mass Communication, titled Beyond Objectivity, Producing Trustworthy News in Today's Newsrooms. Therefore, I say objectivity is dead. Oh, you don't think I've provided enough evidence to make the claim? Who cares? I think I did. What are you going to cite some objective standard? Can't say I'm wrong. (laughs) And again, sorry for all the journalism jibber drawing, but that's what we're doing here. It does strike me that a reconsideration of objectivity is pretty misleading. Like I said, ever since I've been doing this, and five years of that was on a show called On the Media, where I learned about how the profession defined itself, I never thought that objectivity was a bedrock concept. It wasn't even really a solid concept. So now, Len Downey says we need to get past objectivity. 
It's certainly something that uh, uh, people as old as I am in this business grew up with. Uh -huh. That was the, you know, the objectivity was the, it was was the notion of playing it straight. But I, I, but I think there's something about and say you can't be completely objective. That's absolutely impossible. But you can be as fair as possible. You can have as much of the information gathered together as possible. Not leave any of the information out in order to sway people. Not seek a particular goal with your reporting. Uh, and, and and that's that's what we try to do. But that quote wasn't from this past week, it was from 2006. And Downey was speaking there on a panel surrounded by CBS's Bob Schieffer, The Times' Jill Abramson, Judy Woodruff of PBS, none of whom disagreed. The average age of those people today is 77. Back in 2006, they were already the old guard and they were not adhering to the concept of objectivity as being particularly useful. The other ideas that Downey praised in that clip and does now in his articles and in his study, ideas like fairness, accuracy, and truth, those have always been what I was told we should be striving for. Because you can always ask, it's objective by whose standards? In fact, that was the very question asked by the AP's top editor, Kathleen Carroll, quoted in Downey's article. She answered that question, the standard seems to be white, educated, fairly wealthy. And so a stake needed to be driven through the heart of objectivity, or maybe a strong fan needed to be aimed in its direction, given that it's so miasmic to begin with. The thing is, those other ideals, fairness, accuracy, truth, what's to prevent in a couple years the question being asked, whose truth, whose fairness, who does your accuracy owe its fairness to? The postmodern dismissal of truth with a capital T that no one can have a monopoly on because it's non-existent is exactly the critique of objectivity. Postmodernism does offer the tantalizing possibility of undoing entrenched assumptions and definitions that were often used to define normal as white, male, and heterosexual. But opposition to truth with a capital T also does open the door to dismissing actual election results or the rejection of the legitimacy of the scientific method. Replacing objectivity with fairness doesn't address any of the underlying critiques of objectivity. Wesley Lowry, the reporter and press critic most associated with the assault on objectivity as an ideal, wrote in the New York Times, quote, conversations about objectivity habitually focus on predicting whether a given sentence, opening paragraph, or entire article will appear objective to a theoretical reader who is invariably assumed to be white. But if the questions were to shift from one of objectivity to one of fairness, how does that make things any different? If it's a white reader who needs to be assuaged, Larry's assertion, all we're doing is lighting upon, as one would a match, a new word to express an imprecise idea and holding on to it until it begins to singe our fingers. You can't articulate a reasonable person standard for fairness because, again, you come back to, well, who's that person? The reasonable person was once assumed to be a white person, a white man. Now, maybe that's not the automatic assumption, but it's still some of the assumption, much of the assumption will be alleged to be the assumption. It's also an assumption that the demographic of the so-called reasonable person will have a huge impact on her reasonableness. The shift to fairness or truth does not sound like a solution, but it is clear that objectivity has died. I lied. It didn't die today or yesterday. It's just that the body has now been processed by the coroner. 
And of course it was doomed. Objectivity was the rationale that older, more powerful, likely to be white people in the newsroom, told less senior, less powerful, less likely to be white people in the newsroom, that those people couldn't do things the way they wanted to do them. So you get rid of objectivity, you get rid of the obstacle. And at the same time, the pitiless replacement of the old with the young ensures that the rationale that stood in the way will be disregarded or will be shunted aside. I think what we have is an impossibility, conjuring an apt description for the key methods of a very important profession because we just cannot decide on exactly what those methods are. We still believe in things like don't lie, don't plagiarize, don't make computational errors, don't become the story, except when you do, don't write something that a month or a year later might embarrass you or the outlet. But mostly, this is about power and commerce. Write things that sell, or at least function decently within a system designed to sell, and write things that will resonate with enough people as true, because either they are true, or the audience really wants them to be true. It's not so much of a difference between those things. If you write things that are objected to, be savvy enough that they're not objected to strongly enough by people with enough power to threaten your ability to report the next story. The jettisoning of the false belief in objectivity is a reflection that our society and our newsrooms are diversifying, which is the nice word for it, or fracturing, which is the scary word. And now on to the last word. This was from an old Texas monthly write-up of a day spent with the namesake of the Walter Cronkite School of Journalism and Mass Communications, Walter Cronkite. He, Walter, is also an absolute fanatic about objectivity, which he takes to mean telling it straight without preconceptions or personal emotions. Talking to Walter Cronkite about objectivity is akin to discussing salvation with Billy Graham. His breath gets short and his sentences faster, his cheeks heat up, and his eyes turn even bluer. He makes it sound like the holy grail. No matter that it's an unattainable ideal, the nature of objective reality has been the prime topic of Western philosophy for the last two centuries, and I can't honestly say that Walter contributes much to the dialogue. He's just so damned earnest about it that you have to believe him. Well, we all now know you don't have to believe anyone or anything anymore. And so, increasingly, we don't. And that's it for today's show. Corey War is the producer of The Gist, as noted here, but I'm told not on MikePesca.com. Must correct that. Also, Corey does not actually look like a teddy bear as reflected on MikePesca.com. Not an objective reality. Joel Patterson is the senior producer of The Gist. Michelle Pesca is the coo of Peachfish Productions. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oomperoo, jeeperoo, dooperoo, and thanks for listening. And that's the way it is. <laughs>